Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Twenty-five-year-old Sigrid Stevenson was preparing to begin her second year in the graduate music program at Trenton State College. A brilliant and talented pianist, Sigrid was drawn to the school for its reputation, known as one of the finest musical instruction institutes in all of the country. Passionate and driven by her music, Sigrid chased her dreams until the very moment a brutal and violent killer dashed them. Just before midnight on September 4, 1977, the body of the pianist was discovered on the stage in Kendall Hall one of the oldest buildings on campus. She was lying feet from her beloved piano, and it was a grisly scene. Detectives described a massive amount of blood on the floor, on the bench, on the sheet music. It appeared Sigrid had been attacked from behind, but there were no probable suspects, hard evidence, or solid leads. Nearly 50 years later, much has changed. Trenton State College is now the College of New Jersey, And while Kendall Hall still stands, the surrounding campus is completely transformed. Sigrid's story has become part of a complexity of misinformation, inaccurate reporting, and changing details blended with contemporary ghost stories and modern works of fiction. Yet, there remains the case of a murdered woman and the killer who, thus far, has gotten away to live his life while robbing Sigrid and her family of everything that might have ever been. This is Trace Evidence, Episode 235, The Murder of Sigrid Stevenson. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we examine the brutal, unsolved murder of 25-year-old Sigrid Stevenson, a music major attending what was then known as Trenton State College in Ewing Township, New Jersey. However, before getting into the case, I wanted to call your attention to a major case update. In episodes 170 and 171, we covered the disturbing murder of five-year-old Justin Turner in Berkeley County, South Carolina in 1989. Earlier this week, Justin's father, Victor, and his stepmother, Pamela, who has since changed her name to Megan, have both been arrested and charged in Justin's murder. This is still a developing story, and I'll be producing a full update episode in the coming weeks, but I wanted to share this good news with you. While nothing can ever bring Justin back, 
Perhaps seeing these monsters held responsible can help alleviate some of the limitless pain and grief they have caused. In one final quick note, I will once again be representing Trace Evidence on Podcast Row at CrimeCon this year, which is set to take place in Nashville, Tennessee, May 31st through June 2nd. CrimeCon is one of my favorite events to attend because it allows me to meet listeners, discuss cases, and get more informed about other cases. If you're planning to attend, please use promo code TRACE to save 10% on your pass. That's CrimeCon.com promo code TRACE to save 10%. I really look forward to seeing you there. And now, without further ado, this is the murder of Sigrid Stevenson. For decades, students and faculty at the College of New Jersey have written and shared stories about what they believe to be their own encounters with the supernatural. They speak of doors creeping open, of windows slamming shut, and objects moving on their own. The stories revolve around one of the oldest buildings on campus, Calvin N. Kendall Hall, and it's been the location many a student has brought their friends to to creep them out, or their significant other to scare them into holding on a little tighter and leaning in a little closer. No one seemed to know the origin of the stories, and in the absence of fact, dozens of fictitious stories were dreamed up to explain it all away. Some believed it was all about a murder, a young woman who was killed in a sordid series of ways as to satiate the appetite of the audience, or perhaps the storyteller that night. Some accounts say she took her own life, Others tell the grisly tale of a musician strangled to death with wire torn straight from the piano she was playing moments before her life was ended. While each story became more outrageous than the previous, the truth behind these stories and the dark shadow cast over Kendall Hall was buried under a few more inches of dirt and disinterest. As life became rumor and rumor became legend, most people forgot that there was a dark and disturbing truth at the heart of those stories. It's the story of a 25-year-old musician named Sigrid who came to the university to get a master's degree in music. She was vibrant, creative, intelligent, and full of life. She dreamed of being a concert pianist, of teaching children to love the piano the way that she did. Then, one September night in 1977, Someone decided to crush all of her hopes and dreams, to shatter a family, and to commit one of the most brutal and grisly crimes in the history of the state of New Jersey, a crime which remains unsolved some 47 years later, nearly twice as long as the skillful pianist, loving daughter, and caring sister was actually alive. Sigrid Miller Stevenson was born on Thursday, January 24th, 1952 to parents Peter and Barbara in Alameda County, California. She was the Stevenson's first child and would be raised primarily in the city of Livermore, located 40 miles east of San Francisco. At the time, Livermore was a small city with a population of just barely 2,000. However, times were about to change as in September of that year, eight months after Sigrid's birth, the University of California Radiation Laboratory was opening a new branch in the city, a branch which we know today as Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Peter, 
who was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps, attended Princeton University and, following his graduation in an accelerated class, he and Barbara married in July of 1946. Just a few years later, they headed west to California, initially settling in Berkeley. While Barbara had attended Vassar, majoring in economics, she would ultimately trade in her work with the Gallup organization, becoming a homemaker and raising the family. Peter attended postgraduate classes while working as a researcher with the University of California at Riverside. He would go on to be hired at Livermore National Lab, where he was employed as a nuclear chemist. This new position offered the family greater financial stability and freedom, and in 1955, when Sigrid was three years old, her parents welcomed their second child, another daughter they'd named Sylvia. Not a great deal of information about Sigrid's upbringing has ever been publicly revealed, as her family were staunchly protective of their privacy. However, many have noted that Sigrid was a brilliant and talented young woman whose interests were more focused on the arts than on academics, but she performed well as a student regardless. Reportedly, her father had an affinity for music and was a skilled guitar player. When Sigrid was young, he introduced the instrument to his daughter, and it quickly became apparent that music would be her one true love. While the guitar may have been the instrument that opened up the world of music to her, Sigrid would find herself most powerfully drawn to the piano. Taking lessons as a youngster, she developed into an extremely talented and skilled pianist who frequently performed at school recitals and with the theater presenting music for plays. While music may have been Sigrid's most prominent artistic ability and form of expression, it's worth noting that she was also a skilled artist, writer, and she had been involved with the drama department. Photographs of the time show a young woman with sharp, focused eyes and a serious, if not dour, expression. But descriptions given by friends tell the story of a deeply complex, fun-loving, sweet and adventurous young woman who had a zest for life and a wanderlust which could not be contained. Sigrid, or Siggy, as she was often referred to by her friends, has frequently been described as someone who didn't follow the mainstream and often went her own way, regardless of what others might have thought. She was fiercely independent and, to some degree, seemed to prefer her alone time over basic socialization. Friends and teachers noted that she loved to take long walks, by herself, accompanied only by her trusty journal and sketchbook. Sometimes those walks would transform into hikes through the expansive Livermore Valley. She was often referred to as a deep thinker, a sensitive young woman who some would lament possessed an almost dangerously trusting nature. Though she made friends, none of them would define themselves as a best friend or even a close friend, saying Sigrid was the type to keep you at arm's length. She was polite, sweet, and kind, but she wasn't looking to invite folks into her circle, which she kept reserved for herself and herself alone. Although no one has ever surfaced to report anything negative about Sigrid or her behaviors, it's quite clear that societal norms of the time dictated that she be somewhat of an outcast. Acquaintances, classmates, and even former teachers would refer to her in a variety of ways that gently skirted along the border of offensive while others crossed the boundary wantonly. Some referred to her as unique, artistic, or somewhat eccentric while others preferred terms such as weird, strange, or freaky. In a Trenton Times article from 1978, 
One professor described her as eccentric when another professor, also present for the interview, interjected saying she wasn't eccentric, she was just plain weird. R. Thomas Hageman, the public relations officer for Trenton State College, perhaps embodies the contradictions best. Asked to describe the musician, he replied saying she was, quote, bizarre. No, bizarre is too strong a word. Unorthodox. Quite a loner. Unconventional. Friendly, but a loner. End quote. In the spring of 1970, at the age of 18, Sigrid graduated from Livermore High School and would move quickly to the University of California at Riverside, where she pursued a degree in music and considered taking up additional courses for education. At the time, she dreamed of becoming a concert pianist, but she seemed to have some doubts in her own abilities, batting around the idea of picking up a teaching certificate, maybe as a fallback. While attending Riverside, she got a side job teaching music to special needs children. And while she may not have had much time for her peers, friends and colleagues were adamant that she possessed a deep love and appreciation of children. She would spend countless hours teaching them and playing music for them, and this experience played a large role in helping sway her mind more towards education. While she was away at school, Sigrid's parents tried to encourage her to get more involved in clubs, groups, and social activities. They urged her to make friends, to experience the fun of college the way they had, but she was resistant to the idea, assuring her family that she was plenty happy spending much of her time alone. Regardless of what was going on in her life, she was always most focused on the piano and would practice for hours every morning and night. If she was aware of a piano that was available, she'd be there to play it, pushing herself to the limits. Classmates at Riverside were quick to say that while they were going to football games, partying, and heading out for dates on the weekend, Sigrid was content to play the piano in an empty room until the sun came up. While some admired her dedication to music, others described the relationship as an obsession. Sigrid seemed to have a connection to her music that others couldn't adequately define, perhaps for a lack of experience at that level of play, perhaps due to the limitations of the time. While I'm in no way qualified to make diagnoses of any kind, there's a message that seems to be hidden somewhere between the lines. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, people may not have fully understood her behaviors, with many saying that it could sometimes be challenging to spend time with her as she often didn't pick up on normal social cues. Though there's no way to confirm this today, I very much got the impression that were Sigrid a teenager now, she might have been somewhere on the spectrum. At the same time, maybe it was everyone around Sigrid who struggled to understand her and not so much a result of her own behaviors. But I digress. Sigrid graduated from Riverside in 1974 at the age of 22, and here there seems to come somewhat of an inexplicable gap in her timeline. For the most part, there's no mention of what Sigrid was up to between the years of 1974 and 1976. There are many references to this time, none of which are overly specific. It appears that after finishing up at Riverside, she did some traveling, continued to teach music to children, and started making plans for the next phase of her academic career. Sigrid ultimately decided she did want to pursue a teaching certificate, and along with that, she set her sights on obtaining a master's degree in music. The school that caught her eye was Trenton State College, 
known today as the College of New Jersey. Located in Mercer County's Ewing Township, 40 miles northeast of Philadelphia, Trenton State was nearly 3,000 miles from Livermore, but the distance didn't bother Sigrid. She hadn't chosen the school because of its location, but because in the 1970s, Trenton State was known as having one of the best music instruction schools in the country. In the fall of 1976, at the age of 24, Sigrid enrolled in advanced music classes as a graduate music student. Sigrid's first year at Trenton seems to have gone off without a hitch. She performed well in her classes, practiced piano as often as she could, and impressed her instructors with her skill and drive. She shared a dorm room with Marie de Pasquale, a 20-year-old from Somerville who found her roommate's eccentricities bothersome. De Pasquale would later tell reporters that Sigrid was a loner who lived her life dangerously, hitchhiking and backpacking by herself with little to no regard for her own safety. De Pasquale later told the Jersey Journal, quote, I think she was too friendly for her own good. She would talk to anybody, end quote. While much of the rural campus of Trenton State has changed over the years, much as the name has, there remain some of the original buildings and halls. Calvin N. Kendall Hall was the fourth building constructed in 1932 on what is described as the modern campus, and it was originally built to accommodate student assemblies, music productions, and theater productions. Kendall Hall was home to two theaters, with stadium-style seating as well as a costume shop. In addition, it contains several faculty offices, classrooms, and soundproof rooms for practicing. Kendall Hall would quickly become one of Sigrid's favorite places on campus. Often, she could be seen riding her green bike across the quad, shoving the front tire into the rack outside the building, and making her way inside where she would practice for countless hours on a pit piano. It wasn't the greatest piano, with many accounts saying that a wooden block had been used to keep the instrument properly balanced, but it was a piano that she could get her hands on. Throughout much of the day and early evening, Kendall was flushed with students, and the piano was often in use. However, at night, there wouldn't be anyone there. Many students on campus had learned that the locks on old Kendall Hall weren't the most secure, as the building hadn't seen any construction upgrades in decades. A set of white, Wooden doors in the rear of the building didn't lock properly, and any student inclined to do so could easily gain entrance by making a strong, fast, and hard pull on one of the doors, which would simply fly open. Slamming the door would re-engage the lock, but it could easily be overpowered with another firm pull from outside. According to Marie de Pasquale, as well as others who knew Sigrid, it wasn't uncommon for the pianist to spend entire nights in Kendall Hall. She'd sneak in, play piano for hours, and crash for a few hours beneath the stage. This wasn't unique to Sigrid, though, as campus security would later report that they were aware of numerous students over the years who had spent their nights beneath the stage in Kendall Hall. For their part, they would check the building most nights, and when they did find students present, they'd escort them out with a stern reminder that the building was off-limits after school hours. This, of course, did little to dissuade those who really wanted to gain entry. And when it came to Sigrid, no one was going to tell her she couldn't play that piano to her heart's content. From reports of the time, it seems apparent, Sigrid had been caught in Kendall Hall after hours on many different occasions. 
After completing her first year at Trenton in the spring of 1977, Sigrid decided to spend her summer traveling and seeking out adventure. Much of her comings and goings that summer are left up to debate, as if corroborating evidence exists to confirm her precise locations, it has never been fully revealed. We know that she decided to stay in the area that year, and needing a place, she ended up renting out a room from one of her professors, a Dr. Alan Lutz. That arrangement stayed in place allegedly until August, when she suddenly decided to move out of the Lutzes and into the home of a local Ewing Township volunteer fireman. This man has never been identified publicly, though it's been suggested that the situation was similar to Dr. Lutz, in that Sigrid simply rented a room in the home occupied by the firefighter and his family. Classmates and friends of the time reported they did not believe Sigrid was in a relationship with anyone. Sigrid kept herself busy during the summer, teaching music to local children and singing in the choir at the Nassau Presbyterian Church in Princeton, just 10 miles north of Trenton State. Timothy Grant, Trenton's campus police chief, would later state that Sigrid often arrived early for church services and stayed late, seemingly enjoying the atmosphere. Grant would go on to note, if Sigrid wasn't at the church, she could almost always be found playing the piano. In addition, Sigrid had made arrangements to expand her pursuit of education and had managed to get a position student teaching at Fisher Junior High School, where she was set to begin that fall. At the end of August, 25-year-old Sigrid decided to go on a large-scale hitchhiking trip by herself, which would take her up into New England, across the border into Canada, and as far as Nova Scotia. While money might have been tight, she always found a way to make a few bucks to continue funding her trips. Grant would later report, quote, She carried a sketchbook through her summer travels and sold drawings of the cityscapes to supplement her tight college student budget, end quote. Another friend would note that Sigrid never allowed her finances to limit her zest for travel and her love of life. The talented pianist returned from her Canadian travels on Friday, September 2nd. Less than 48 hours later, she would be dead. Apparently, upon returning to Ewing Township, Sigrid found herself without a place to stay. For reasons which have never been fully detailed, the family that she was staying with had taken a trip out of town and were delayed in their return. It appears that, making the best of a bad situation, Sigrid decided to return to Kendall Hall, where she would find both a place to stay for the next few days and a piano to practice on, as she had in the past. It had been weeks since she'd sat down at a piano, and her journal detailed how stiff and achy her fingers were after playing for a few hours that Friday night. Classes were set to begin on Wednesday, September 7th, and seemingly, the 25-year-old had intended to spend the next three to five days living as a secret resident of Kendall Hall. Trenton State was a large university with, at the time, a campus that measured at 210 acres. When classes began, approximately 2,200 students would be moving into the dorms. 4,300 undergraduates lived in the area and commuted, while the campus would also welcome 5,000 grad students and part-timers. However, the campus was mostly empty when Sigrid returned that Friday night and would remain so over the weekend. It's later been reported that there were only 50 students and staff members present that first weekend of the month, making the large campus a veritable ghost town. Monday, September 5th, was Labor Day, 
and the holiday weekend thinned out campus even further. The sheer absence of most students and staff should have helped narrow down potential suspects, and yet, nearly 50 years later, the truth of that horrible weekend remains obscured. While school was out of session, Kendall Hall remained in some form of limited use. There were theater workshop groups that used the stage, and sometimes movies were shown there. There were also groups of local actors and singers who would put on small plays and operas. As mentioned earlier, there were two theaters inside of the hall, one for musical performances, which Sigrid utilized, and another for theater productions, which was referred to as the Stage Theater. On the evening of Saturday, September 3rd, a local theater group was set to hold their final performance of the summer at the Stage Theater. The play was J.B., written by Archibald McLeish, and it's a modern-day retelling of the biblical figure Job. There were 16 cast members and approximately 30 people in the audience. Sigrid was not involved with the play, which utilized background music from a tape deck, but at least one actor had invited the 25-year-old to view this final performance. It was later confirmed by several members of the cast that Sigrid was present for at least some of the play. After, the cast went downstairs to a basement dressing room, referred to as the green room. There, they encountered Sigrid, who was hanging around and chatting with actors. Multiple cast members would later tell authorities that Sigrid made it clear that she planned to spend the night in Kendall Hall, explaining that she was locked out of her host family's house. According to cast members, everyone had left the building by around 12.30 a.m. on Sunday, September 4th. It appeared that Sigrid had left and gone downstairs to sleep that night while members of the cast were still present. In a journal entry she wrote, she complained of loud voices and banging upstairs as the crew broke down the sets. She wrote that it was frustrating because she needed to get to sleep as early as possible so she could wake up as early as possible to practice piano for a few hours before security checked the building. She noted that she wanted to be out before 11 a.m. when the guards usually came by. The journal entry reportedly confirmed that she had received multiple warnings about being in the building after hours. No one can say with any certainty what exactly happened after this journal entry. There's never been any confirmation or statements issued that would show that any campus security officers actually did check the building on the morning of Sunday, September 4th, as Sigrid suggested they would at 11 a.m. In fact, we have only one alleged sighting of the 25-year-old after 12.30 a.m., and it isn't exactly a strong one. According to the Courier-Post, someone identified only as a friend told investigators they saw Sigrid on Sunday morning. She was reportedly spotted at a movie theater some 15 miles from the campus. What movie theater, what time, and who actually saw her? Those answers have never been supplied. Around this time in 1977, campus security was made up of 12 trained gun-carrying police officers and seven security guards who did not possess firearms. In addition, the security force would generally be supplemented with 42 student security aides who monitored the dorms from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. However, since classes were not yet in session, it appears that campus security was, at the time, simply the 12 cops and seven security guards. 22-year-old Thomas Cocatello was one of those 12 armed campus police officers 
and he was on patrol that Sunday night. At approximately 11.30 p.m., he approached the south entrance of Kendall Hall. There, he spotted a familiar sight, Sigrid's green bike sitting in the rack just outside the building. This caught his attention for two reasons. One, the building should have been empty. And two, he had seen the same bike in the same rack the previous night. Making his way around to the building's main entrance, the officer noted that he had to use his keys to gain entry since the building was locked, or at least as locked as it could be when there's broken doors. Making his way through, the officer would come upon a disturbing and grisly scene. Up on the stage, where the piano Sigrid played sat, he found a tremendous amount of blood pooling beside a large piece of white canvas. Lifting the canvas, he discovered the nude, lifeless body of Sigrid Stevenson lying face down. She had clearly been violently assaulted about the head, and the damage done had been so extensive that she could not be identified by her face alone. There was blood everywhere, pooling on the stage, splashed across the pages of sheet music on the piano, on the piano bench, and there was a thick trail leading from the piano to the body, which was located just a few feet away. Cocotalo noted that Sigrid's bare feet were splattered with blood as well as some mud. Now, I should note, there's a lot of contradictions and conflicting information in descriptions of the scene. Multiple articles report that, when found, Sigrid's head was wrapped in a blood-soaked shirt believed to be one of her own. Other articles specify that it was actually a scarf wrapped around her head, while other articles yet make no mention of anything being on her head. Most reports agree it was one of her own shirts, though. No one has ever determined if the shirt was placed over Sigrid's head before the murder or after. Police theorized at the time that the killer might have used the shirt to try and muffle Sigrid's screams. Another contradiction is in relation to whether or not Sigrid had been tied or bound. Initial reports note her wrists were bound. Later reports delete that detail. I tend to believe her wrists were not bound since there has never been any mention of what they were bound with. Rope, wire, cuffs, electrical cord, etc. Also, decisions made later in the investigation seem to suggest that had she been bound during the crime, she was not bound when her body was found. I'll explain this a little later when we get deeper into the investigation. There was no sign of a weapon at the scene, though again we enter somewhat into the realm of the uncertain. Previously, I made mention of a chunk of wood which was used to balance the piano. This piece of wood was later described as being a two-by-four, and it was further noted that while this board of wood may have been used to balance the piano, it also may have actually functioned as a makeshift lid prop, keeping the lid open during playing. Either way, investigators noted that this piece of wood was not located at the crime scene, and it has never been recovered, leading many to wonder if the block of wood could have been the murder weapon which police have only ever described as a blunt instrument. Police theorized that Sigrid had likely been playing the piano when she was attacked. The fact that Sigrid was found nude threw investigators for a loop. They assumed she had probably been sexually assaulted prior to being killed, but the autopsy would later rule out any signs of sexual assault. This left detectives to determine whether Sigrid had chosen to play the piano in the nude or if perhaps someone had forced her to strip 
prior to the murder. To say that investigators at the scene were baffled by what they saw would be an understatement. Beyond the condition of Sigrid's body and the bloody chaos of the scene, investigators recovered several items connected to the victim. Firstly, they found her backpack, which contained her diary, sketchbook, and a large assortment of clothes, which seemed to confirm that at the time, she didn't have a place to stay. Inside of the backpack, they also recovered her wallet, which contained her license, as well as $7 in cash and multiple traveler's checks. Given that multiple personal items, money, and checks had been left behind, police were pretty quick to rule out the possibility that this had been some kind of a robbery gone wrong. It was also suggested later by a prosecutor that they had found cans of beans that Sigrid had apparently brought along as a food source for the next few days. In hopes of obtaining more information about the days and hours leading up to the murder, investigators read through her journal and transcribed it. Tiffany Reed, a campus police officer, would later state that the entries were extremely well-written and that Sigrid's creativity came through the pages. At the same time, it was the writings of a woman who refused to alter her lifestyle for safety or the decorum of society. Reed explained, quote, She wouldn't just follow the normal flow of what you think a female in the 70s would do. She was very independent. She would quote people saying, Oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't stay late at night by yourself. It's dangerous. But she just did that anyway. She did what she loved. End quote. While the journal detailed her life for the previous months and her travels up through Canada, it did little to offer insight into what may have led to her brutal murder. The full content of the journal has never been released to the public. However, law enforcement has made it clear that there was nothing contained within the pages that gave them any solid leads or potential suspects. This compounded the issues they were facing at the crime scene. They could find no trace of who may have perpetrated this heinous crime. There were no footprints, fingerprints, fibers, hairs, or any other forms of evidence recovered that could help provide them with a direction to look. There was, however, one piece of evidence that not only confused investigators, but also opened the door to a pool of potential suspects, namely campus police. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Investigators had contacted members of the staff in an effort to get a positive identification of the victim, and one of those who was brought to the scene was Dr. Stanley Austin, a supervisor of the graduate music program. Almost every article about this case tells the same needlessly gratuitous story 
about how Dr. Austin was only able to identify Sigrid by her hair due to the horrifying extent of damage the killer had dealt to her face. Why this is reported so often, I don't know, since it was not a positive identification and police were already in possession of the victim's ID. Regardless, it was not Dr. Austin's alleged identification that opened new investigative avenues, but instead his acknowledgement of the white canvas piano cover that the killer had placed over Sigrid's body. The piano cover was completely out of place, Dr. Austin told police, and wasn't even kept in Kendall Hall. There was no cover used for the piano Sigrid played, as it was in poor shape, was of lower value, and needed a chunk of wood to operate properly. In fact, the cover belonged to a completely different piano that was housed in a separate building. Today, north of Kendall Hall, stands a modern building which houses the physics, math, and chemistry classrooms. At the time, Bray Hall stood in its place, just 75 yards from Kendall. Bray Hall had been built more recently than Kendall, and as such, it had better construction, stronger doors, and locks that actually worked. While campus police later noted that they hadn't felt concerns about the security of Kendall Hall because it housed nothing of value, Bray Hall was home to a $10,000 Mason and Hamlin piano as well as countless musical instruments of high value. The white canvas cover came from that $10,000 piano. In addition to Dr. Austin pointing this out, another member of the music department would later tell police he had seen the white cover on the piano in Bray Hall just a week or two prior to the murder. Now here's where things get interesting. In order to transfer the piano cover from Bray Hall to Kendall Hall, one needed to be in possession of three keys. Well, technically two keys, since we know due to poor locks, a key wasn't necessary to get into Kendall. To get to the piano cover, you would need a key to grant you entrance into Bray Hall, and then a second key to get into the concert hall in which the piano was kept. It was reported at the time of after the murder that the locks on Bray Hall were tested and showed that they were functioning properly. There was only one doorway that led into the concert hall, and that too was kept behind a locked door, which again was checked and was shown to be solid and functioning properly. There were no windows in the concert hall either, meaning getting through the locked door was the only way to get to that piano and thus its cover. So obviously the question becomes, who on campus had all of the keys necessary to get into Bray and into the concert hall where they could get the cover? Dr. Stanley Austin didn't have any of the keys, and neither did Robert Rittenhouse, then the music department chair. Two janitors were assigned to work Bray Hall, but neither of them possessed both of the keys either. There were only two groups on campus that had both of the keys with them at all times. The 12 members of the campus police and the seven members of campus security. Asked about the possibility that someone else could have gotten into the building and into the concert hall, Dr. Austin was adamant that unlike Kendall, no one could get inside Bray Hall without the keys. He pointed out the extremes to which Sigrid had gone to be able to play the piano in Kendall, her powerful drive to play for hours at a time, and her love of pianos in general. Noting the difference between the expensive piano and the one she was last playing, he commented to police saying, quote, Believe me, 
if there was a way anyone could have gotten access to the concert room and the grand piano, Sigrid would have found it. End quote. There was no doubt, even without the information about the cover, the keys, and Bray Hall, campus law enforcement was already on the list of potential suspects. I should note that, at the time, this investigation was being handled jointly by the campus police and the Ewing Township Police. Lieutenant Ed Shaler of the Ewing Police was very concerned about the possibility that there was a chance their suspect was a member of campus law enforcement, and in hopes of narrowing the pool, he made a strong decision. Shaler ordered that all members of the campus police, all members of the security team, and all patrol officers of the Ewing Township Police would turn in their handcuffs and batons so that they could be examined for blood or any evidence linking them to the murder. R. Thomas Hageman, the school's public relations officer, noted that investigators had pointed out that marks on the victim's body could have been caused by nightsticks and handcuffs, such as those used by campus law enforcement. This is part of why I lean towards the idea that Sigrid was not in fact bound when she was found, because if she had been, there'd be no need to examine the other handcuffs. It sounds more likely that they found ligature marks on her wrists, which could have been caused by cuffs. Strangely, then Mercer County Assistant Prosecutor Paul O'Gara seemed frustrated by the possibility of law enforcement involvement and later expressed his opinion to the Trenton Times. He stated that while the ligature marks could be compatible with handcuffs, they could also match up to wire, rope, or a number of other items. He stated the marks could be, quote, compatible with 11 different things, but not indicative of any one, end quote. He went on to state there was no evidence campus police or security were involved, saying, quote, lots of people could have done it, end quote. But that's not entirely true. Lots of people didn't have access to Bray Hall. Lots of people didn't have access to the concert hall. And lots of people didn't have access to that piano cover. Police theorized it was possible that the suspect may have brought the canvas over to the crime scene, perhaps not to cover the body, but to remove it and ultimately changed his mind. Others thought that, since she was sleeping there, Sigrid may have brought the cover to Kendall Hall, but both of these trains of thought hit the same dead end. How could anyone have gotten to the cover without having the keys? the best lead police still had pointed in the one direction they didn't really want to go, towards campus law enforcement. There is no way to detail how investigators handled the scene and what, if anything, they brought with them for analysis. Keep in mind, this is 1977, and so DNA isn't even on the radar. If that canvas cover was still in an evidence locker today, they might be able to use the MVAC in hopes of obtaining DNA but police have never stated what evidence, if any, they kept from the crime scene, nor has there been any statements made in these nearly five decades about testing anything. At the time, police were direct, saying that there was little physical evidence. Where that evidence is today is up for debate if it still exists. Dr. Rafat Ahmad of the Mercer County Medical Examiner's Office would ultimately conduct the autopsy. He would rule that Sigrid suffered multiple injuries, including a fractured skull, and had excessive bleeding from cuts to her face and scalp. Furthermore, 
He noted that she had died from blood clots due to successive beating on the head with a blunt instrument. Dr. Ahmad stated that Sigrid had sustained 15 deep scalp wounds, which resulted in multiple lacerations and fractures of her face and skull. He went on to note that Sigrid's nose and two ribs had been broken and that she had bruising on her chest and elbow. This seems to suggest that after Sigrid fell to the floor, the killer likely continued assaulting her in the chest and head areas and that she may have sustained additional wounds trying to protect herself. Hoping for some insight into Sigrid, her life, or anyone who may have wanted to harm her and what led up to her death, police began interviewing friends and classmates, both in New Jersey and back in California. Unfortunately, for the most part, no one was able to offer much insight into Sigrid's life, nor who she may have been hanging around with, if anyone, around the time of her murder. Dr. Austin, who knew her well, told police that Sigrid had never expressed to him any concern for her personal safety or security while she was on campus. Police then moved on to questioning people who had attended the play JB on Saturday night, as well as the 16 members of the cast. While multiple people reported seeing Sigrid at the play that night and hearing her discussing that she was spending the night in Kendall Hall, no one was able to offer much beyond that. However, there was one man who claimed he might be able to provide great insight into the case. His name was Sidney Porcelain, and at the time, he was somewhat famous for his claims to possess psychic powers. Not only did he claim to be a psychic, he taught courses on utilizing extrasensory perception and had discussed cases with police in the past. Porcelain, who had participated in the play J.B., not only confirmed to authorities that he was present at the play that night, but he also claimed to have known Sigrid slightly. He later told the Trenton Times he had met Sigrid in July during play rehearsals when he saw her playing the piano in Kendall Hall. Porcelain went on to tell the Times that he had been impressed with Sigrid's playing and asked her if she'd be interested in performing the music for some songs he'd written. And while she agreed, she later went on vacation and the two didn't see each other again until the final performance of the play, the night before she was found dead. Porcelain asked what type of person Sigrid was, told the Trenton Times, quote, She was effusively friendly. She indiscriminately told her business to everybody. You could see how she could easily be taken advantage of. She was the natural victim type, end quote. Now, despite the fact that police initially brought Porcelain in for questioning as a potential person of interest, since he was one of the last people to see her alive, he apparently provided a strong enough alibi that their questioning slowly turned into a series of psychic parlor tricks. Porcelain asked to touch some of Sigrid's possessions so he could see what vibrations, his word, not mine, he could pick up on, and they actually handed him her backpack. I'm not kidding. They allowed this guy to touch some of the only evidence in this case. Allegedly, though he had no knowledge of the murder, despite it being splashed all over the headlines and him directly knowing the victim, he got vibrations that Sigrid had been violently beaten on both sides of her head. He went on to say that the letter S was coming to him strongly, though he noted he couldn't be sure if the suspect's name began with S or if the S just stood for Sigrid. He claimed the killer was someone who worked with wire 
and went on to say he had a premonition on the day of the murder, but didn't know what it meant at the time. Apparently, in 1977, police took this garbage seriously, though they didn't possess the knowledge of how many of Porcelain's alleged psychic claims throughout his life would turn out to be bunk. Some sharp detectives. One prominent example comes from a 1976 interview with Porcelain about the fate of John List, who five years earlier had brutally murdered his wife, mother, and three children before disappearing. Porcelain proclaimed that List had been killed and there would be no justice served, yet John List was identified arrested and jailed in June of 1989. I should note, in that same article, one of the case investigators said he would have been really impressed with Porcelain as a psychic if not for the fact that for every detail he got right, he got a different one wrong. Despite all of this, police were adamant that Porcelain had a solid alibi for the entire 24 hours following the ending of the play at 12.30 a.m., meaning he couldn't possibly have been involved. Personally, I'm not so convinced, but I think it's become clear over the years how much I detest these alleged psychics. Other people, interviewed by investigators, included the firefighter that Sigrid had stayed with for part of August, though police have never named this man nor commented on his relationship to the victim, nor what his alibi for the time of the crime may or may not have been. Another curious subject police questioned was a former member of campus security, who was alleged to have known Sigrid and to have had a friendly relationship with her. Much like the fireman, there is no mention of this person's name nor any information provided publicly about what he may or may not have had to offer during questioning. While neither of these men has ever been identified, it does appear clear that neither has ever been officially ruled out either. Nearly 3,000 miles away, back in Livermore, California, Sigrid's parents returned from a holiday trip to learn the horrible news about their firstborn child. Utterly heartbroken, the family kept their feelings on the murder and the loss of their daughter to themselves, never speaking publicly, giving interviews, or discussing it at all. The couple made arrangements and arrived in New Jersey on Friday, September 9th. A memorial service was held for Sigrid at the Nassau Presbyterian Church, where she had previously sung in the choir. She was laid to rest in Princeton Cemetery following a service from the Reverend Dr. Wallace Alston. She lies beneath a simple marker reading only Sigrid M. Stevenson, 1952-1977. While Sigrid's family struggled to accept the bitter grip of their new reality, little was done to honor her memory in either the community of Livermore or Trenton State College. An entry was placed in the school yearbook, but it was less than 100 words and her name was misspelled. A Sigrid Stevenson Memorial Scholarship Fund was set up by students and faculty at the university, but doesn't appear to exist anymore. As years have worn on, Trenton State changed much, but it never fully acknowledged the horrors that Sigrid experienced, nor has any memorial plaque or statue or bench or tree been erected in her honor. In fact, the university didn't really do much of anything major in response to the murder, Clayton Brower, then president of the college, stated that they had no intention of enlarging the school's security personnel, but ultimately, they did add a few new officers. They also installed new lights on the grounds and in the parking lots, 
And while it isn't mentioned, I certainly hope they fix the locks at Kendall Hall. In addition to this, they printed up a guide which would be handed out to all students arriving for the beginning of the semester. This guide, entitled 10 Steps to Secure Living, provided such luminous pieces of advice such as lock your door when taking a nap and lock your door even if you will only be gone a few minutes. I find these statements somewhat ironic, if not darkly comedic, if the reliability of their dorm room locks bore any similarity to the useless ones on the doors at Kendall Hall. Many who have examined this case have made note of the lax response from the university, and while I completely agree, it was somewhat a sign of the times. A college, then, like today, is a business, and the school really didn't want to do much to draw attention to the murder, as that might hurt the bottom line. At the same time, it's worth pointing your attention towards the Cleary Act. Jean Cleary was a freshman at Lehigh University in 1986 who was raped and murdered in her dorm room. Her parents felt that the school had failed to provide adequate statistics about the state of crime on the campus, which had been rising for years. In the three years prior to Jean's arrival, there were 37 violent crimes on campus, but the vast majority of crime was severely underreported by the administration. The Cleary Act, passed in 1990, requires all universities to keep and make available information about crime both on campus and in the surrounding area. It further requires the schools to provide three years of crime data to all prospective students and employees. Furthermore, universities are required to provide a crime log kept by campus police of all crimes reported to them or that they become aware of. Institutions are required to give warnings when crimes occur and must report violent crimes as well as what, if any, disciplinary actions were taken by the school. You see, for many years, universities weren't all that focused on reporting crimes or aiding law enforcement in their investigations for fear of casting a pall over their academic environments and perhaps seeing a drop in enrollments. While I can't say with any certainty that this is why Sigrid's murder was downplayed, it's hard to see any other reason to not warn students of potential assaults. In fact, there was another assault, similar to Sigrid's, the same day her parents arrived in the state of New Jersey. On Friday, September 9th, five days after Sigrid's body was found, a student returned to her room in the Wolf Towers dormitory at approximately 2.12 a.m. Upon arriving, she found a light on in her room and then saw an unknown man inside. The man, who identified himself as Charlie, chased the student out of the room and down the hall before he cornered her and exposed himself to her. When she screamed, he started violently beating her until doors began opening and he fled the scene. She described her assailant as a black male, with short hair standing 5 feet 9 inches and wearing a dark blue Trenton State College t-shirt. Whether or not this man was ever captured, I can't say, because coverage of the assault was extremely limited. However, investigators would later state that they didn't see any similarities between this crime and Sigrid's. I mean, what could possibly be similar? Both crimes occurred on campus, both crimes involved nudity and sexual undertones, and both crimes involved a female student being violently attacked. Clearly, it's unrelated. Inside of two weeks following Sigrid's murder, 
the investigation was already growing quiet. Police were fairly direct with the media, saying that not only had they obtained very little evidence, they had no particular persons of interest to close in on. Lieutenant Shaler of the Ewing Police Department would tell the Trenton Times, quote, We have no hard factual motive. No single person is being zeroed in on. End quote. The last seemingly major activity undertaken by investigators in this case that just can't fit into the category of interviewing people came on Wednesday, September 21st, two weeks after Sigrid was killed. There are two lakes on the campus of Trenton State, these being Lake Siva and Lake Silva. Silva is located approximately 1,200 feet east from the rear entrance of Kendall Hall. Siva is right around 500 feet north of Kendall Hall. On Wednesday, the 21st, the New Jersey State Police's four-man underwater recovery unit entered Lake Siva and conducted a six-hour search, and while they would not publicly state what they were looking for, R. Thomas Hageman noted that they were seeking out a potential murder weapon. Siva is a six-acre man-made lake, and in 1977 had a depth of approximately 8 to 10 feet. The search, which focused only on the side of the lake nearest to Kendall Hall, ultimately resulted in no evidence being recovered. When asked why they had decided to search the lake and not the other lake, police declined to comment. A student who watched the search told reporters that all he saw the police pull up from beneath the water was junk beer bottles, hubcaps, safety cones, and even a set of car stereo speakers, but nothing which fit the extremely vague murder weapon description of blunt instrument. At this point, the investigation pretty much ground to a standstill. Lieutenant Shaler noted that they had compared Sigrid's murder to every murder of a woman across the country and could find not one case which was similar, and that's pretty much how it has stayed. One year later, in 1978, investigators noted that while they had conducted more than 100 interviews, they hadn't discovered any new evidence or information. Not yet had anyone been labeled a suspect or person of interest. The next year, in 1979, the Ewing Township Police Department issued a statement through a spokesperson about the depth and force of their investigation. It read in part, quote, the investigation is still open. We talk to about two persons a week in this investigation. We've interviewed hundreds of persons, some more than once. We've also given several persons polygraph tests. Whenever there is a similar murder anywhere in the country, we check with the homicide detectives investigating that case to see if there are any links between the two. That's how far we're going to work on this case. End quote. Still, no suspect, no person of interest. That's how it was throughout the end of the 1970s and much of the early 1980s. Police seemingly stopped discussing the case and reporters found new horrors to astound their readers with following 1983, it's almost as if this case and Sigrid herself had never existed. In 2014, Kathleen Petrucci of the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office told NewJersey.com, that they had revisited the case several times over the years, but, quote, there has been no new evidence and there is nothing investigators can follow up on, end quote. As years have gone on, much has changed. Trenton State College saw much of its campus altered, 
old buildings torn down, new ones erected. Even its name wasn't safe from alteration, known today as the College of New Jersey. Kendall Hall still stands, though memories of Sigrid and her murder faded out as students and faculty moved on from the school. For decades, Sigrid existed only as the nameless source alleged to be behind a series of hauntings in the building where her life was taken. Rumors abounded about the student who was strangled with piano wire, the woman who was brutally murdered by her boyfriend and hung from the rafters above the stage. When you cut through all of the rumors and legend, the myth and alleged ghosts, what you find is a tragic story that doesn't need a supernatural aspect to be worthy of memory and investigation. Instead, it's an open and unsolved case, the story of a talented, kind, and adventurous young woman whose life was cut short and for whom justice has never been served. She is remembered not for the way that she lived, but the manner in which she was killed, and in place of a daughter and sister is a banshee or poltergeist. For some, it's far easier to believe in spirits and specters haunting old buildings than it is to accept that some murderers get away with it and some victims are purposefully forgotten. Timothy Grant, captain of the College of New Jersey's campus police, refuses to allow this case to close or for Sigrid's name to be forgotten. Asked about her, nearly 50 years after her murder, he replied, quote, The inquiry into Sigrid Stevenson's murder remains an enduring appeal as we continue to examine the case using state-of-the-art approaches. Some prayers should not end with amen, but be left open as a plea. Sigrid Stevenson's legacy is not the reductive cliches concerning ghost stories that are fueled by inaccurate accounts of her life and the tragedy of her ending. She is an influential part of the College of New Jersey student lineage who moved through Trenton State College with a keen intelligence and soaring aspirations. Can you name some sleuthing partners that are just unstoppable and always get it done? Like Watson and Holmes, Riggs and Murtaugh, Wadsworth and Mr. Green? What about perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling true crime books or marketing mystery merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash trace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash trace now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash trace. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you begin looking into the life and murder of Sigrid Stevenson, you're quickly met by a lot of walls and dead ends that refuse to yield any light. We can learn about what she loved, the type of person she was, what she dreamed of, and some of what she did, but it does little to give up any real knowledge of who she was in her heart of hearts. Her family never spoke about the murder, choosing to experience their grief and pain in private, while law enforcement never had much to say at all. They could tell you what they knew, what they'd seen, and what they'd found, but it didn't add up to much beyond what we've already covered here. That a unique and talented young woman was murdered seemingly needlessly while doing the one thing she loved most, playing the piano. This is an extremely difficult case to analyze, in part because it's filled with contradictions and inaccurate information. Was Sigrid bound when she was found? Well, that depends who you ask. Did she have a shirt wrapped around her head, or was it a scarf, or was there nothing at all? Again, that all depends on which source you consider the most credible, and in fairness, there's a lot of sources out there. Dozens of articles were written in the weeks after Sigrid's murder, and hundreds in the nearly five decades since. In more recent times, countless podcasts have put together their own coverage of this case, though for the most part, their research and grasp of facts has been limited at best and purposefully inaccurate at worst. Whether you're a former reporter, an independent researcher, or a professor of criminal justice, you should at least ensure your coverage meets the basic standards of fact. Looking at the case, the sheer lack of evidence seems to be the primary reason it's never been solved. According to investigators at the scene, the suspect left behind nothing that would aid in identifying him. No fingerprints, footprints, hair, or fiber. Nothing was found that could help in determining who may have been responsible. What evidence was recovered didn't appear at the time to offer up much in regards to an answer or solution. The only items police have really mentioned was the white piano cover that had been draped over Sigrid's body. Do police still possess that cover? Could it be open to testing with new technology, or has it been destroyed, lost, or misplaced? My only attempt to obtain these answers led me only to dead ends. What about the victim herself? An autopsy was performed which confirmed the cause of death and that the victim had not been sexually assaulted, 
But was anything else gleaned from the process? Was there any evidence on her body? Did they take samples from beneath her fingernails? Were there defensive wounds or signs that she might have fought back? Again, these are all pertinent questions that neither campus police nor the Ewing Township police have ever answered. I can see why the case is so hard to solve. It doesn't sound like they managed to pick up any evidence outside of Sigrid's body, the piano cover, and her backpack. There's never been any discussion about a potential murder weapon. They just call it a blunt instrument. But was there no methodology available to them at the time to determine the difference between it being a nightstick, a block of wood, a golf club, or a tire iron? To date, there has never been anything said about what the murder weapon might be, which essentially means it could have been anything. Then there are the ligature marks on Sigrid's wrists. Now, ignoring the seemingly flawed reporting of her having been found with her wrist bound behind her back, I find it hard to believe that the marks on her wrists were of such a difficult-to-discern shape and nature that police were unable to rule anything in or out. Apparently, the marks left on the skin by a pair of handcuffs are too similar to those left by a rope, or a wire, or a chain, or a belt. There's a big part of me that debates back and forth how much of this case remaining unsolved is the result of no evidence, or innocently poor police work, or purposefully poor police work. Remember, the only group of people who have ever been alleged to have possibly been involved were campus police and campus security, but we'll get into that later. I could keep going on and on with different examples, but analyzing this case is like trying to solve a crossword puzzle without any clues. Sure, a lot of different answers might fit into the boxes, but that doesn't mean you're right. So what do we know with any level of certainty? Well, a few different things. We know that Sigrid was known to spend nights in Kendall Hall, even in the prior semester when she had a dorm room she could go back to. Apparently, this wasn't all that uncommon, and even campus law enforcement made references to the fact that, at different times, students had been known to stay in the building overnight. We know from Sigrid's own journal entries that she had been caught in the building after hours previously and had been told she wasn't allowed there. She knew it so well that she remarked in what is believed to be her final journal entry that she had to be out of the building before 11 a.m. when the guard would make his rounds. According to cast members from the play, they left Kendall Hall at approximately 12.30 a.m. on the morning of September 4th, 23 hours before Sigrid's body would be found. In their statements, they confirmed that as far as they knew, the building was locked up. Now, we know Kendall Hall couldn't properly be secured because of the broken set of doors. Whether or not anyone in the play knew that is hard to say, but different students confirmed that it was basically an open secret on campus. According to stats provided by the university, it was believed around 50 students and staff were present that weekend. If you factor in the 16 cast members and the 30 or so audience members, now your number increases to 96. Then you add in the 12 darn police and 7 security guards, which rounds your numbers out to 115. Now, to be fair, you're likely looking at anywhere between 90 and 110 people being on campus at different times that weekend. A timeline would be extremely helpful in narrowing down possibilities, but yet again, we hit a dead end since there has never been any information released regarding how long Sigrid was believed to have been dead when she was found at 11.30 p.m. Was Sigrid killed 10 minutes or 10 hours before she was found? Again, this is not a question we have the answer to, 
but it sure would be nice. Why exactly they didn't release that information under the assumption that they actually know it is mind-blowing to me. Experienced officers walking into the scene should have been able to make some basic guesses before the medical examiner even performed the autopsy. Was the blood spatter on the music sheets dry or wet? Was the massive puddle of blood on the stage coagulated or had that process only begun recently? Taking into account temperature, weather, and humidity, at a minimum, law enforcement should have been able to make a remotely accurate guess about a potential time of death. Right now, all we know is it happens somewhere in a 23-hour window of time, and that really doesn't help anything. I don't know if it was because it was 1977, or if it was because it happened on a college campus, or any of the other innumerable factors which may or may not have led to a piss-poor investigation, but the way in which this case was handled is at best embarrassing and at worst a textbook example of how not to investigate a murder or examine a crime scene. Maybe I'm being too harsh. That's certainly something worth considering. But I've covered more than 200 cases on this podcast, and I've rarely seen things so mismanaged. In the vast majority of situations, this is why cases go unsolved. It's not because the killer was some evil genius. It's not because it was well-planned and executed. But generally, it's because the early part of the investigation is substandard. We've all heard about how important the first 48 hours are. But if you're working the case wrong from the start, you've already lost it before that first hour passes, let alone the other 47. So, based upon theories of investigators, Sigrid was playing the piano when her unknown killer came up behind her and began raining down vicious blows with a blunt instrument. Based upon the blood trail and bruising and wounds to Sigrid's elbow and ribs, it sounds like she fell backwards off the bench and the killer continued hammering her until he believed her to be dead. Now, either before he struck or immediately after, he apparently took one of her shirts and wrapped it around her head. The police theorized this might have been done to muffle her screams, but given this murder took place on a stage where the victim played piano into all hours of the night while consciously trying to avoid being caught by campus security, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. If people outside aren't going to hear the piano being played, why would they hear the screams? Unless, of course, this crime was committed when other people were in the building, but I find it hard to believe any t-shirt would have muffled any of those screams. So, then there lies this possibility, that the killer's act of covering Sigrid's head wasn't to muffle screams, but perhaps, as we often see, it might have been a sign of shame. Sometimes it allows a killer to not acknowledge what they've done, as with the head covered, the victim still looks human and possibly alive. But in this case, we also have the piano cover, the one piece of evidence in this case that really amps up the confusion and mystery. If you've already covered the victim's head, why do you also need to cover her whole body? Surely a killer isn't going to feel uncomfortable about her being nude, or maybe the victim's nudity had something to do with the crime. Jealousy, maybe, desire, or perhaps something else. We still have no way of knowing if Sigrid was nude by choice or if she had been forced to strip. I know it sounds odd, but from what we've been told, Sigrid was a very unique individual, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that she may have played in the nude, especially down in Kendall Hall after hours, where presumably she wasn't expecting anyone to show up. 
The nudity is one of the more confusing aspects of this case, and it either plays an important role or it is essentially a red herring. Sadly, with as little information as we actually have about the crime, it gets perhaps more attention than necessary because there's so little else to examine. The autopsy would determine that Sigrid had not been physically sexually assaulted, but ordering someone to strip down under the threat of beating them to death would certainly qualify as sexual assault, I think. We just don't have any way of knowing either way. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the 2x4 that might have been used to balance the piano or might have been used to prop the lid open. Reportedly, it wasn't found at the scene and has never been located. If the police theory is accurate, that Sigrid was playing the piano when she was attacked, then how could that piece be the murder weapon? Surely someone who took piano as seriously as she did wasn't going to be banging away on the keys overnight in a building she's not supposed to be in while it's terribly unbalanced or the lid can't be held open. If the 2x4 was the murder weapon, which is really impossible to prove now, this would suggest that the crime was more spur of the moment with the killer using what was available to them. At the same time, I don't see how they could get the 2x4 without Sigrid noticing unless they were on that stage before she arrived and were waiting for her. A possibility, but again, nothing conclusive. One thing I'd like to address for a moment is the manner in which Sigrid was killed. I keep seeing a lot of theories and articles suggesting that the crime had to have been personal because the killer targeted the face and quote-unquote destroyed her identity. While I can't say whether or not the crime was personal, I would like to at least suggest that if you're planning to kill someone by beating them over the head with a blunt object, I can't imagine it's easy to do so without destroying or severely damaging the face. Sometimes a cigar is a cigar. Moving back to the bloody scene, if there was blood all over the stage and splattered everywhere and it was this huge mess, it seems to suggest that the killer would have gotten blood on him or herself. Yet, there's no report of blood being found anywhere else in the building assuming they actually looked for it. This would have been an extremely grisly murder, where the killer is raining down successive blows with blood spatter flying through the air. After the murder, this person walks around the stage, grabs the piano cover, and drapes it over the body. They don't leave any bloody footprints, fingerprints, or handprints. They don't leave a trail of blood behind them as they exit the building. They don't accidentally bump into a wall or door frame where they might transfer a small spot of blood. This person or person leaves behind absolutely nothing, which, at least in my perspective, comes down to three distinct possibilities. The killer was incredibly lucky, or the terrible investigation missed other evidence, or the killer planned this and knew exactly what they were doing. We know that the piano cover had been in Bray Hall behind two locked doors at least two weeks prior to the murder. We also know that Sigrid had gone hitchhiking and returned to campus on Friday, September 2nd. Bray Hall was vastly more secure than Kendall Hall. So if someone were taking that piano cover, whether it was Sigrid using it for a blanket or a pillow or the killer planning to use it in the crime, the window of time was limited. Sigrid would have had to have gotten it Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. The killer, if they had been planning this in advance, could have gotten it earlier, but given it was just used to cover the body, I can't imagine the killer going out of his way for it. Still, the question remains, how did someone get it? 
Even if Bray Hall was open, the concert hall was locked, and students weren't allowed to just wander in there given that it housed a $10,000 piano and other expensive instruments. To me, there's only two ways someone got that piano covered. Either someone with the keys needed to reach it was involved in the murder, or someone who had a close relationship with someone who had those keys was allowed to take it. Is it possible that Sigrid may have had some kind of a friendship or more with a member of campus security who knew she was staying in Kendall Hall and looked the other way? I don't think that can be completely ruled out. We know from the interviews police did that Sigrid had previously had a friendly relationship with a security guard who, by the time of the murder, was no longer working there. Again, it's one of those situations where there's no real way of knowing which way it was, which only adds to the frustration and heartbreak. So, finally, let's turn our attention towards possible suspects and see what makes sense and what doesn't. The only potential suspect we know by name is the so-called psychic, Sidney Porcelain. Porcelain tells police he knew Sigrid prior to the crime, that he'd interacted with her previously, and that he saw her at the play the night before her murder. He tells police details of the crime while claiming he is unaware of it, despite it being headline news. He describes the way in which Sigrid was killed, going so far as to say that most of the damage was delivered to both sides of her face. Now, police have made it clear that Porcelain had a solid alibi for the 24 hours leading up to and following the crime, so they rule him out. For some reason, at that point, they allow this charlatan to put his hands on some of the only evidence they have so he can try and read some vibrations. Yeah, that worked out real well for everyone. Now, what if you'd found evidence that his alibi wasn't solid? But since you let him touch the evidence, you've got nothing to really use against him because any defense lawyer could argue he only touched the items when you allowed him to. Personally, I don't think Porcelain was the killer. The guy was 66 years old at the time and not in the greatest shape. That's not to say he couldn't bludgeon an unsuspecting woman to death, but it seems somewhat improbable. At the same time, these alleged psychics do love getting involved with investigations, so I tend to view Porcelain more as a guy who wanted attention and thought he had some kind of magic powers. Knocking Porcelain out of the picture, we get down to nameless people we can't say much about. The two that immediately come to mind are the firefighter Sigrid apparently stayed with prior to her hitchhiking trip and the former security guard who she was friendly with. When it comes to the firefighter, there's not much that can be said. We don't know his name, his description, his location, his relationship to the victim, where he was that night, or if he had ever been on the campus before, let alone was he knowledgeable about Kendall Hall. He could be a good suspect, but without something more, we really can't analyze anything in relation to him. Looking at the former security guard, there's not a lot more there. We know nothing about this person, much like the firefighter, aside from two details that he knew Sigrid, and that he knew the campus. Beyond that, we know that while he worked there, he would have possessed the keys to Kendall and Bray Hall as well as the concert hall. He was described as a former guard. I'd be very interested to know when and why he had stopped working there. Regardless, though, this is a good potential suspect. He knows the layout of the campus. He knows the layout of the buildings. He knows Sigrid, and he may be aware that she often spends nights in Kendall Hall. The only thing that we can't make a connection to is, did he know she was there that night? Unless you can establish some kind of communication between him and Sigrid or him and someone else that was aware, you're kind of at a loss. 
Could he have wandered onto campus to check it out and see? Maybe. Could she have told him when she'd be back? It was possible. As a former guard, it's entirely possible that he had copied some of the keys. That would have made it real easy for him, but there's just no way of knowing. As an aside, I'd be really interested to know what that guy's interview with police was like. Moving away from him, I want to take a moment to bring up the alleged Charlie. You remember, the guy who attacked another student on campus the same week this murder happened? Sigurd was found dead on a Sunday night, and Charlie shows up in the Wolf Tower dorms approximately 1,400 feet southeast from Kendall Hall. According to the report, the man was waiting in a female student's dorm room, chased her into the hallway, exposed himself to her, and when she screamed, he began beating her until he was scared off. I don't mean to be a jerk about it, but how in the hell can police say they see no similarities between this attack and Sigrid's murder? I mean, does the guy have to actually beat her to death for them to consider it similar? I wish we could pursue this suspect a little more. I wish we had anything beyond the name Charlie, but I can't even tell you if he was ever caught or if there were more assaults. Remember, schools didn't consider it a positive to publicly disclose crimes on their campuses, so it's entirely possible he had been around before or after, and we simply don't know about it. I just find it unconscionable to rule this out, sight unseen, when this attack happens less than five days after Sigrid is killed. Both attacks apparently happen at night. Both happen to have a sexual aspect to them. Both involve a man beating a woman, and the two scenes are less than 1,500 feet apart. The suspect was apparently wearing a Trenton State College t-shirt at the time, which would suggest he has some connection to the school, which could include at least a rudimentary knowledge of different buildings and their layouts. Might he have been one of the students who knew Kendall Hall was easily accessible regardless of locks? There's no way of knowing. Sort of feels like a missed possibility there. And while it's possible police cleared this suspect through their investigation, I don't feel inclined to lend them any benefit of the doubt here. Finally, there are the campus police and campus security details. Twelve police officers armed with guns, nightsticks, and handcuffs and then seven security officers with only cuffs and nightsticks. From the beginning, it feels like everything kind of points towards a current or former member of one of these groups. Police laid it out pretty plainly. The killer knew how to get into the building or had keys to it. The killer knew the layout and possessed the physical prowess necessary to crush Sigrid's skull. The killer managed to pull the crime off without anyone being the wiser and escaped without being seen. Lieutenant Shaler was so concerned about this, he ordered all campus police, security, and even his own patrol officers to submit their nightsticks and handcuffs for examination. When none of those items could be connected to the crime, they started going diving into lakes. These campus police and security officers represent the only group that seems to check all the boxes police have set up for the investigation. Knowledge of the school, they hold some level of authority over the students and wouldn't necessarily be recognized as potential threats. Quite the opposite, in fact. They have keys to all of the buildings. They carry weapons on them, including nightsticks, which could certainly fit into the category of a blunt instrument. Though, as former assistant prosecutor Paul O'Gara pointed out, a lot of different objects fit that description. There's a lot of information that could be helpful here. Mostly, who was working that weekend? 
Where were they assigned? Didn't anyone see them around campus in the 23 hours leading up to the discovery of the body? If so, where? Did any of them have a connection to Sigrid? Had any of them threatened students or expressed violence previously? These are all pertinent questions that we don't have answers to. I truly hope investigators really dug deep into all members of campus police and security guards, including former employees who might hold a grudge. We know hundreds of interviews were done and several people were given polygraphs, but we also know from Lieutenant Shaler that some of the people they wanted to interview refused to speak with them, though they've never been named, nor has any further information been given. Is it possible that they had a person of interest but could never nail down the evidence they needed? Maybe, but it really sounds like they had nothing from the get-go and never managed to develop anything else. There's simultaneously so much to sort through here, but almost nothing to narrow the field. You've essentially got a suspect pool of absolutely anyone who was present on the campus between the final performance of JB at around 8 p.m. on September 3rd and the discovery of Sigrid's body at approximately 11.30 p.m. on September 4th. Students, teachers, locals, hell, for all we know, Sigrid invited someone to hang out with her that night, and it all went wrong, even though that doesn't really sound like her style. A potential suitor, another music major jealous of her abilities, or perhaps a security guard who was sick and damn tired of telling the student to stay out of Kendall Hall after hours. Without more information, it's nearly impossible to determine anything. This year, will mark 47 years since Sigrid Stevenson was brutally and violently beaten to death on the stage of Kendall Hall. The investigation, by all accounts, appears to still be frozen back in 1977, as there have never been any new developments, any new evidence, any anything. Instead, the case is hardly discussed and what files exist are in a binder or a box, somewhere in a cold case file amongst countless other unsolved homicides from the Garden State. Sigrid Stevenson's future was stolen from her that night, and nearly five decades later, no one has managed to provide even the most basic of answers as to why or who. Unfortunately, unless someone comes forward, new evidence is discovered, or there's an outright confession. The murder of Sigrid Stevenson will remain open, unsolved, and ice cold. If you're looking for more information about the murder of Sigrid Stevenson, there are many websites, forums, newspapers, and podcasts that have covered her case, though sorting fact from fiction can be difficult. For this episode, the most helpful and reliable sources were the Trenton Times, the Courier Post, and the Daily Record. If you have any information about the murder of Sigrid Stevenson, please contact the Ewing Township Police Department at 609-882-1313. You can also contact the New Jersey State Police at 609-882-2000. You can also contact Mercer County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-582-2700. 2762 or by visiting their website at mercercounty.crimestoppersweb.com. What do you believe happened? Tweet me at TraceEvPod, 
email me at traceevidencepod at gmail.com or comment in the Facebook group. Just a quick reminder, if you're planning to attend CrimeCon this year in Nashville from May 31st through June 2nd, use promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com to save 10% on your pass. That's promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com. Now, I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing Patreon producers, without whom Trace Evidence would not be possible. A massive thank you to Andrew Guarino, Anne M. Bertram, Camelia Tyler, Christine Greco, Danny Renee, Denise Dingsdale, Desiree Lauro, Donna Buttram, Diani Dyson, Jennifer Winkler, Justin Snyder, Kara Moreland, KY, Lars Jensen Fangel, Leslie B, Lisa Hobson, Madison Lahoulier, Melissa Brekhuizen, Nick Mohar Schurz, Roberta Jansen, Ruth, Stacy Finnegan, Stephanie Joyner, Tom Radford, and Wend Organ. I want to thank you all so much for your support. It means the world to me, and you are truly the lifeblood of this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the show and listening to your episodes ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash traceevidence or click the support option on the official website at trace-evidence.com. This concludes our look into the tragic murder of Sigrid Stevenson. While the case may be approaching 50 years cold, we've seen so many cases previously thought to be unsolvable broken these last few years, and I truly hope Sigrid's will be one of them. Before letting you go, I just want to welcome you to another year of Trace Evidence. I know 2023 was a bumpy ride for the podcast, but I'm focused and determined to ensure 2024 is the greatest year ever. And yes, I am aiming to be back to a new episode every week. So once again, thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence. <laughs>